Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from Colossians chapter 2. This will provide a little bit of context for the sermon passage this morning, which is going to come from Proverbs chapter 12. So our sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 12, but before we turn there, let's look at Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read particularly verses 6 through 15, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principle of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Amen. Did you hear it? I tried to exaggerate it. I tried to read it in such a way that, that you would catch Paul's Prepositions. How do we live in Him? How are we raised from the dead? With Him. There is a sum total of our salvation. It's the person of Jesus Christ. There's a fullness of deity and divinity that dwells in one place, one person. His name is Jesus Christ. The totality of God can be found in Christ. The totality of salvation can be found in Christ. So when we turn back to Proverbs chapter 12, as we'll now do, what should we expect to find? So if J ends with Jesus, we should find Jesus. Proverbs chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. Hear again the word of the Lord. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a, of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the one who is slighted but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. 
He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. A man will be satisfied with good in the hand of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Amen and amen. When I was young and too cool for school, we had to do this project where the teacher brought out these flimsy little trays with little cups in them. And we were to take scoops of dirt and dump them into the little cups. Every, every kid got their own little cup in the flimsy tray. And we would dump a scoop of dirt. Did you guys ever do this? And then the teacher would rip open a packet of seeds. And each kid was to take a seed out of the packet and poke it down into the dirt. And then... The tray was placed in the big window where the sun could shine on it. And we would wait with bated breath, sprinkling drops of water for days, for weeks, waiting with bated breath. I remember thinking to myself, because I was too cool for school, this is like the dumbest project ever. Like we're watching dirt, you know, and something's going to grow. We all know this. But it was startling how enthusiastic my entire class and myself, how enthusiastic we were the first day that little stalk of green poked up from the dirt. We were all strutting around like Tom Hanks with a volleyball thumping our chest. I have made things grow. It was so exciting to see something grow. And then there was a most unexpected lesson that emerged. Not all the trays grew. Not all grew and thrived. Not all grew tall and strong. And we went to the teacher and we said, I don't understand. It's, it's all in the same tray. It all had the same seeds from the same packet. It's all under the same sun. And the teacher very wisely said, different soil. You see, there's life in the dirt. This is Solomon's big metaphor for us this morning from Proverbs chapter 12. What you are rooted in, you grow up from. What you plant your feet in is what causes you to become. In our case, Solomon urges his son, and we who are the children of Solomon, sitting at his feet, learning wisdom from him this morning, what he would have us do is root ourselves in Christ. He urges us to plant ourselves in Jesus, in whom is alone all life, true life. Friends, Jesus came that you might have life. Jesus came to give us life and to give it abundantly. So let us live in him and for him. Think about this a little bit this morning. 
we have to do a little bit of work, especially for those of us who are not familiar with the nature of poetry. As we've read into often in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is attempting to use a metaphor to communicate something that is true about the world. In verse 8 and 9, he introduces us to this idea. He says, a man will be commended according to his wisdom. And then again in verse 9, better is the one who is slighted but has a servant. Solomon says that there's a kind of wisdom in the world that is worthy of praise and commendation. There's a wisdom that makes a man praiseworthy. And then he says in verse 9, it is the wisdom of ignoring the reputation for reality. The praiseworthy wisdom is living life in a real way. Not being preoccupied with the appearance of life, but indeed focusing on the reality of life. He makes this point in verse 9. The one who is slighted, the one who is considered insignificant, the one who is unimportant, the one who is not looked at and seen as valuable but has a servant. Now, that phrase for us in our modern culture generally means is an oppressor. We only ever today think of servants and service as a form of oppression. But in Solomon's culture, what he means by this is, is someone who has conquered someone else and thus acquired a servant. Someone who has purchased someone else and thus acquired a servant. Or, in Hebrew culture, Someone who has won the loyalty and love of someone else and thus acquired a servant. What Solomon means by this is better is the one who has such abundance in life that they can keep servants. The poor do not keep servants. The oppressed do not keep servants. We might, to make it a little more palatable to our modern taste, Say it this way, better is the one who can actually employ a lot of people and gets ignored by the media than the one who is the most popular on Facebook and Twitter but doesn't pay anybody's salary. That's what Solomon is saying. It's better to actually have the kind of abundant life that enriches the lives of others. There's a commendable wisdom to living for the care and welfare of others. He contrasts this in verse 8 and 9 with the perverse heart that is despised. This perverse heart, again, is not some vague corruption of the interior, but a specific selfishness in verse 9. He who honors himself. The one who seeks to celebrate himself. The one who seeks praise and glory and reputation for himself, but lacks bread can't actually provide a meal. Do you see the comparison? The one who goes through life parading all his glory, but can't actually put a meal on the table, is not to be commended, but despised. And the one who, though not celebrated by the world, works hard, earns a living, and puts food on the table, that one is actually commendable. That one is actually the better man. Now, we could, of course, flatter ourselves this morning, right? We are the hardworking middle class, right? 
the ones who do our job, who put food on the table, and nobody knows we exist. But of course, Solomon is speaking to his son. And he's intending to call our attention to the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the better man, not us. Jesus is the better man who came into the world specifically to be slighted. Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was lightly esteemed and yet he has made of the world an army of servants. Yet with loyalty and love, he has won over the world. He's the better man, whose reputation has gone out as rooted in reality. He's the better man, who according to his wisdom, has actually brought life into the world, abundant life. In fact, if you wish me to draw the symmetry between this better man and Jesus a little tighter, I can do this. He's the bread of life. He does not lack bread. He is bread itself, bread from heaven. Life is not found in what we eat, but in who we know, Jesus Christ. To help us grasp the fullness of this principle, to help us live out the reality of this principle, Solomon gives us two most unexpected metaphors or illustrations. They're unexpected to us because we don't live in an agrarian society. The farm boys are going to understand this part a lot easier than the rest of us. Solomon says that the better man is the one who makes life, who gives life to others. The one who is unconcerned with reputation and concerned with the reality of living well and putting food on the table. And there are two ways to do this. The first is in verse 10. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Did anyone see that one coming? Well, there's something we have to explain. First is, when the righteous regard the life of an animal, Solomon's not thinking animal the way you are. What are you thinking of? Pets. Cats. Dogs. Not Solomon. He's a, from a farm culture. He's thinking ox and donkey. You know, the one that pulls your plow, the one that hauls your wagon, the one who regards the life of his ox and his donkey can provide bread because he has an animal that can haul the wagon and pull the plow. The righteous one who regards the life of his animal, the sheep, the goats, the cow, they have wool, they have milk, they have food. The one who regards the life of the animal who respects and cherishes the little things in life and knows that our life comes from them and knows that that life is to be reverenced and regarded well. To put us a little out of our culture and a little more into Solomon's culture, you have to think of it this way. When the Hebrews took a ram for Passover... Do you know what they were supposed to do with that little ram? They were supposed to select it from all the flocks that lived out in the fields two weeks before Passover. And then they were supposed to bring it into their house 
and feed it dinner when they had dinner. And the kids were supposed to play with it and pet it and adopt it. So that two weeks later, when they took that lamb out behind the house and split its throat and drained its blood and brought its meat inside to eat it, everyone understood. This one died for me. They regarded the life of the animal as sacred, as a sacrifice for our life. They didn't just carelessly raise I'm not a fan of industrial farming, so sorry if I get a little worked up. They didn't just carelessly raise animals, fattening them up to be obese, to slaughter them in the cruel and the most heartless ways, to ship them to 300 million Americans. They reverenced the life of the animal and said, you must die so that I must live. Every dinner became a symbol of the sacrifice of Christ. The one they knew and loved died for them. Not some unknown, strange animal 10,000 miles away. The righteous regard the life of the animal and recognize there is something special in the living beings of the world. They represent to us the work of Christ. By contrast, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. By contrast, the wicked who seem to do well by animal standards, are actually ultimately cruel. They do not reverence the life of the animal. They do not care or tend to it. They do not produce bread from its health and its well-being. They instead seek their own welfare and their own self-promotion. Do you guys see the connection? The better man, the righteous man, Jesus Christ, loves life. And he causes life to thrive among humans, his servants. But he also causes life to thrive among animals. Have you ever considered how much God loves animals? I mean, on the one hand, we have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he says, he even knows the number of the sparrows. And he feeds the ravens when they cry, according to the psalmist. I walked down Antrim Street this morning to come here. And the street is completely silent. There's not a human moving. That's not uncommon on Sunday morning at 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. And all the birds are going crazy. All the way down Antrim, Antrim Street. If you were evaluating humans, it was completely silent. If you were evaluating birds, they beat us to the song. And we're worshiping their God and maker. Our God loves animals. That's why he made trillions of them. And he loves the life of animals. This is the better man. The man who loves this world and the humans who are in it. Who loves the animals who live in it. But then thirdly, the second metaphor. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread. The one who honors himself apparently doesn't till the land. The one who is self-seeking and self-congratulatory won't stoop to caring for the soil and tending to the dirt. And so he lacks bread. But this one is different. This one tills the land and is thus satisfied with bread. Tends to the soil in order to cause the crops to grow. Having regarded the life of his animal, he has someone to pull the plow for him. Someone to haul the wagon for him. And so he goes out and he raises up a crop 
and is satisfied with the abundance of his bread, because he is hard-working. But not so the frivolous, not so the careless. They waste away their day on things that do not matter, wasting away their day on the self, not on one another, and care for this world and the life of this world. They are devoid of understanding. They don't understand that the beating heart of farming is actually caring for dirt. Because you know what's the one thing we as humans can't do? We can't make seeds grow, can we? We can't make life. We can't make humans grow. It's this amazing experience as a parent, isn't it? What did you do to make your kids grow? Basically, you got out of their way. You let them eat. You let them sleep. And they grew. They just grow. They grow a lot. They get really tall. They get really strong. We live in a world of life. Where the life grows. There's a metaphor that is picked up by Jesus here. Jesus in his, one of my favorite parables, speaks of four different soils. And he says there are four kinds of soils in the world. There's that path that has been hard-packed and firm by the sin and sorrow of this life, and the Word of God can't get in. because It's hard, that heart. And then there's that soil that's stony and rocky, and the Word of God can only get a shallow root. And likewise, he says, there's the soil that is full of weeds and thorns and thistles and so many cares and worries about this world that the word of God is choked and it cannot grow up. I wonder, did we miss the big point that Jesus makes when he says, I am the sower. He is the caretaker of soil. He is the plowman of our hearts who comes to us and churns up these hearts and softens and breaks up the clods of these hardened hearts, unwilling to receive his word. He comes and he tears from us the roots of weeds and thorns and thistles. He takes out our worldliness and our distractions and our cares. And most of the time when he does that, we don't appreciate it, do we? He comes and he seizes our stones and he grabs our rocks and he pulls them out and he tends to the soil of our hearts Do you see Solomon's metaphor? He says to his son, not Rehoboam, he says to his son, Jesus, be the better man. The man who cares for soil, who tends to the hearts of humans so that they are fruitful and abundant, so that they'll grow up and flourish with life, tend to the things that make for life So that there's an abundance of life in this world. But it's not just Jesus who is called to this kind of life. A life by which life flourishes. A life by which life does well. It is also us. Solomon in verse 12 steps away from his metaphor. Steps away from his word picture. And trains his laser focus on us. Verse 12. The wicked covet the catch of the evil men. But the root of the righteous yields fruit. According to this proverb, Solomon is saying that there are two ways to profit in this world. 
The first is to covet and to grab, to take and to seize. The wicked and the evil aim for this. They try to catch others' well-being. The language here is one of the thief, that they wait by the wayside for the farmer who is taking his crop to market, and they catch his crop and steal it. The vision is one of the fishermen who is hauling his nets onto the shore, and along come the evil men, and they raid his catch, his fish, and steal them. But not so the righteous. The better man, the righteous man, yields fruit. He is the one who does not seize but gives. And there is a root that we can have in him that makes us fruitful in turn. Friends, we can have a relationship with this righteous man who loves life and causes life to flourish in this world. We can have a relationship with this man, the better man, and end up better people ourselves. It's called faith. We are rooted in him, John 15. He is the vine, we are the branches. We abide in him. Our roots, that is the origin of our righteousness, is in him. We don't find our righteousness inside us. We don't find our righteousness in the world around us. We don't find righteousness in circumstances or in performance or in intellect or in right belief. We find righteousness in a person in Jesus Christ. He is the root of our righteousness. And when we are rooted in him, we become fruitful. We become life-giving as he was life-giving. Again, Solomon gives us two ways that this happens. The first is in verses 13 and 14. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. A man will be satisfied with good, with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. Having laid out this metaphor of this farming guy, this better man who's a really good farmer, who tends to the soil, who tends to the animals so that fruit flourishes, he now turns to the actual plants themselves, that is you and me. And the righteous comes safely through trouble because of the good of their mouths, the fruit of their mouths, that is their words. These righteous plants, rooted in Christ, have something to say. They have something valuable to say. And those words that come out of their mouths get them safely through trouble. Do you guys know the password that gets you safely through trouble? It is not a trick question. It is Jesus. He saves. It is the name by which men must be saved. It is the name that unlocks heaven's door. It is the name in which Tim prayed. It is the name by which we are promised our prayers will be heard and answered. There is a word on the lips of the righteous. Because we are rooted in Christ, we speak the name of Christ. There is 
fruit in our mouth, good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit that fills our mouths so that we speak the name of Jesus to one another. Likewise, the recompense of his hands. This plant that we are, set in this flimsy little tray we call First RP, with our feet sunk in the soil of Jesus Christ, we each together are growing up to produce the good fruit of godly words and likewise good works that the hands recompense are rendered to us. There's a tremendous joy and good news for us this morning. Jesus is the better man. We might even say he is the best man. And when you're rooted in him, you can be a good person too. Did you know that you are capable of good works when you are rooted in Christ? Isn't that good news? You can actually make a positive contribution to this world. Isn't that wonderful? You can actually make something grow. You can make something beautiful. You can make something wise. Because you're rooted in Christ and his beauty, his wisdom, his righteousness is alive in you. And you can do something. And you can say something. In fact, allow me to suggest that he is a far better farmer and a far better gardener than you ever dreamed possible. Friends, you are doing good work, even when it doesn't look like it. You are saying wonderful things when you are rooted in Christ. He's a good gardener. He's a good farmer. I'm trying to belabor the metaphor because I like poetry and I like metaphors. And because they happen to pick a metaphor and that means a lot to me. I come from a farm. But I'm also trying to belabor it because I want to get to this point. When we use metaphors like farms and gardens and growing, you're not the soil. You're not the root. You're the fruit. It is Jesus who supplies the life. It is Jesus who came to give you life. Life isn't in you. It's in Christ. And the life of Christ flows in you, lives in you, grows up in you, and causes to come from you good fruit. Words of life. Works of life. By contrast, Solomon says in verse 13, the wicked are ensnared by the transgression of his lips. That is to say that that perverse heart back in verse 9 that sought the self, that sought to care only for one's life, that sought to hoard life, to gather life, to grab life, to build up life within that one, found life ebbing away, slipping away. The more we grasp life, the more we lose it. The more we hoard life, the less we have of it. We are ensnared by our foolishness, ensnared by our selfishness, and the transgression of our lips causes us to fall, and we lose life, and we lose the riches we were in pursuit of. 
No, we have before us this vision of a Jesus in whom is the life on which his servants depend. In whom is the life on which the whole animal kingdom depends. In whom is the life in which the whole creation depends. He has life abundant. So abundant that all creation is in him. And because of him. And from him. Not abstract divinity. Jesus. In whom we live and move and have our being. He is the firstborn of the new creation. He is the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. In him is the word and works of life. And we are in him. So we have those words and those works. Solomon's last point then, that sums it all up, ties it all together. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Of course, by Solomon, when he says fool, he doesn't mean intellectual. He doesn't mean the one who lacks intelligence. He means morality. The fool is the one who says there is no God. The fool is the one who lives as if there were no accountability, nothing higher or greater than the self. I've been reading a book by a fellow RP pastor, and he he calls it the ceiling of the self. We imagine that there is nothing higher or greater than me. And when we live in that tiny little world where the biggest and best thing in life is me, wow, there's no life in that. When we live in that little world, Like fools, we are right in our own eyes. We are unwilling to accept the point of view of another, to see the world as the world is seen by someone else. We think that these eyes behold all that is true. We think that these eyes behold everything that is real. And the way of the fool seems right. And so we are unwilling to accept someone else's point of view. We are unwilling to believe that there is life in someone else, life in something else, a life that is to be found that cannot be lost. Everything we see, we think there is. This is a common problem with us, is it not? That you and I are so prone to believe that our life consists primarily or even exclusively of that which we see. But Solomon is summoning his sons to a life of faith. To live not by what we see, but by what we believe. This is why Solomon says, But he who heeds wise counsel, who he who heeds counsel is wise. Back to verse 8. That wisdom that is commendable is the wisdom that is from God. The wisdom that we must heed today is that Christ is the wisdom of God. Paul, Colossians chapter 2. That in Him is our life. That in Him is life abundantly. That in Him is all the riches we need to do well in life. You guys remember the little trays that we grew little plants in? Those plants at their peak maybe got four inches. And it was so exciting to see a four-inch plant that we grew. This last summer, 
We were back in Beaver Falls at the church where we married. It's also called First RP. And in their front yard is a tree. A really big tree. One of the largest trees. They actually measured it. It's one of the largest trees in western Pennsylvania. It's this towering tree with branches stretching from one end of the building to the other. They have worship services under it. Psalm sings. Wedding photos. Under this tree. And when we were there, marveling at this giant tree growing up, I said in my careless, off-handed, son-of-a-dairy-farmer way, must be some good dirt under there. And that's what Solomon would have us believe about life. That the life we see growing up in us, around us, lies in the invisible. Lies in what we believe about God and about Christ. That his life is in us and we are in him. Dear friends, this is what Solomon would have his children believe and do. That Jesus has come that we might have life. So let us live in him. And let us live for him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this great message of grace and of glory. That there is life in this world. And it has come from Christ. That there is life in this world and it is the gift you have given us. And that there is life now in us through Christ that can never be extinguished. A life so abundant, we could call it eternal. An eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us that we so often settle for living death. Father, forgive us that we trade that which grows and thrives for that which is perishable and decaying. Forgive us that we do not rejoice in this healthy, vibrant, life-giving truths and instead trade them for the rottenness and corruption of the lies of Satan. Father, root us once more this day in the life-giving truths of Jesus that we might grow up into him together in this church. Bless us with these wonders, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's respond to the preaching of God's word by singing from his word. Turn with me in your